Chapter Eight, Part One of Through the Brazilian Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Through the Brazilian Wilderness by Theodore Roosevelt, Chapter Eight, The River of Doubt, Part One. On February the twenty seventh, nineteen fourteen. Shortly after midday, we started down the river of doubt into the unknown. We were quite uncertain whether after a week we should find ourselves in the Gai Parana, or after six weeks in the Madeira, or after three months we knew not where. That was why the river was rightly christened the Duvida. We had been camped close to the river, where the trail that follows the telegraph line crosses it by a rough bridge. As our laden dugouts swung into the stream, Amilcar and Miller and all the others of the Guy Parana party were on the banks and the bridge to wave farewell and wish us good-bye and good luck. It was the height of the rainy season, and the swollen torrent was swift and brown. Our camp was at about twelve degrees one minute latitude south and sixty degrees fifteen minutes longitude west of Greenwich. Our general course was to be northward, towards the equator, by waterway through the vast forest. We had seven canoes, all of them dugouts. One was small, one was cranky, and two were old, waterlogged and leaky. The other three were good. The two old canoes were lashed together, and the cranky one was lashed to one of the others. Kermit, with two paddlers, went in the smallest of the good canoes, Colonel Rondon and Lyra, with three other paddlers in the next largest, and the doctor, Cherry, and I in the largest with three paddlers. The remaining eight camaradas, there were sixteen in all, were equally divided between our two pairs of lashed canoes. Although our personal baggage was cut down to the limit necessary for health and efficiency, yet on such a trip as ours, where scientific work has to be done, and where food for twenty-two men for an unknown period of time has to be carried. It is impossible not to take a good deal of stuff, and the seven dugouts were too heavily laden. The paddlers were a strapping set. They were expert rivermen and men of the forest, skilled veterans in wilderness work. They were lithe as panthers and brawny as bears. They swam like water-dogs. They were equally at home with pole and paddle, with axe and machete, and one was a good cook, and others were good men around camp. They looked like pirates in the pictures of Howard Pyle or Maxfield Parrish. One or two of them were pirates, and one worse than a pirate. But most of them were hard-working, willing, and cheerful. They were white, or rather the olive of southern Europe, black, copper-colored, and of all intermediate shades. In my canoe, Louise, the steersman, the headman, was a Mato Grosso Negro, Giulio, the bonesman, was from Bahia, and of pure Portuguese blood, and the third man, Antonio, was a Parecas Indian. The actual surveying of the river was done by Colonel Rondon and Lira, with Kermit as their assistant. Kermit went first in his little canoe, with the sighting-rod, on which two discs, one red and one white, were placed a metre apart. He selected a place 
which commanded as long vistas as possible upstream and down, and which therefore might be at the angle of a bend, landed, cut away the branches which obscured the view, and set up the sighting-pole, incidentally encountering maribundi wasps and swarms of biting and stinging ants. Lyra, from his station upstream, with his telemetro, established the distance, while Colonel Rondon, with the compass, took the direction, and made the records. Then they moved on to the point Kermit had left, and Kermit established a new point within their sight. The first half-day's work was slow. The general course of the stream was a trifle east of north, but at short intervals it bent and curved, literally toward every point of the compass. Kermit landed nearly a hundred times, and we made but nine and a third kilometers. My canoe ran ahead of the surveying canoes. The height of the water made the going easy, for most of the snags and fallen trees were well beneath the surface. Now and then, however, the swift water hurried us toward ripples that marked ugly spikes of sunken timber, or toward uprooted trees that stretched almost across the stream. Then the muscles stood out on the backs and arms of the paddlers, as stroke on stroke they urged us away from and past the obstacle. If the leaning or fallen trees were the thorny, slender-stemmed boritana palms, which love the wet, they were often, although plunged beneath the river, in full and vigorous growths, their stems curving upward, and their frond-crowned tops shaken by the rushing water. It was interesting work, for no civilized man, no white man, had ever gone down or up this river, or seen the country through which we were passing. The lofty and matted forest rose like a green wall on either hand. The trees were stately and beautiful. The looped and twisted vines hung from them like great ropes. Masses of epiphytes grew both on the dead trees and the living. Some had huge leaves like elephants' ears. Now and then fragrant scents were blown to us from flowers on the banks. There were not many birds, and for most part the forest was silent. Rarely we heard strange calls from the depths of the woods, or saw a corkmorant or ibis. My canoe ran only a couple of hours. Then we halted to wait for the others. After a couple of hours more, as the surveyors had not turned up, we landed and made camp at a spot where the bank rose sharply for a hundred yards to a level stretch of ground. Our canoes were moored to trees. The axemen cleared the space for the tents. They were pitched, the baggage was brought up, and fires were kindled. The woods were almost soundless. Through them ran old tapir trails, but there was no fresh sign. Before nightfall, the surveyors arrived. There were a few piums and gnats, and a few mosquitoes after dark, but not enough to make us uncomfortable. The small stingless bees, of slightly aromatic odor, swarmed while daylight lasted, and crawled over our faces, and hands. They were such tame, harmless little things, that when they tickled too much, I always tried to brush them away without hurting them. But they became a great nuisance after a while. It had been raining at intervals, and the weather was overcast, but after the sun went down, the sky cleared. The stars were brilliant overhead, and the new moon hung in the west. 
It was a pleasant night, the air almost cool, and we slept soundly. Next morning the two surveying canoes left immediately after breakfast. An hour later the two pairs of lashed canoes pushed off. I kept our canoe to let Cherry collect, for in the early hours we could hear a number of birds in the woods nearby. The most interesting birds he shot were a Katinga, brilliant turquoise blue with a magneta purple throat, and a big woodpecker, black above and cinnamon below, with an entirely red neck and head. It was almost noon before we started. We saw a few more birds. There were fresh tapper and paca tracks at one point where we landed. Once we heard howler monkeys from the depths of the forest, and once we saw a big otter in midstream. As we drifted and paddled down the swirling brown current, through the vivid rain drenched green of the tropic forest, the trees leaned over the river from both banks. When those that had fallen in the river at some narrow point were very tall, or where it happened the two fell opposite each other, they formed barriers which the men in the leading canoes cleared with their axes. There were many palms, both the beauty, with its stiff fronds like enormous fans, and the handsome species of bakaba with very long, gracefully curving fronds. In places the palms stood close together, towering and slender, their stems a stately colonnade, their fronds an arched fretwork against the sky. Butterflies of many hues fluttered over the river. The day was overcast, with showers of rain. When the sun broke through rifts in the clouds, his shafts turned the forest to gold. In mid-afternoon we came to the mouth of a big and swift affluent entering from the right. It was undoubtedly the Bandera, which we had crossed well toward its head, some ten days before, on our road to Bonifacio. The Nambicaras had then told Colonel Rondon that it flowed into the Duvida. After its junction with the added volume of water, the river widened without losing its depth. It was so high that it had overflowed and stood among the trees on the lower levels. Only the higher stretches were dry. On the sheer banks where we landed, we had to push the canoes for yards or rods through the branches of the submerged trees, hacking and hewing. There were occasional bays and oxbows from which the current had shifted. In these, the coarse marsh, grass grew tall. This evening we made camp on a flat of dry ground, densely wooded, of course, directly on the edge of the river and five feet above it. It was fine to see the speed and sinewy ease with which the choppers cleared an open space for the tents. Next morning, when we bathed before sunrise, we dived into deep water right from the shore and from the moored canoes. The second day we made sixteen and a half kilometers along the course of the river, and nine kilometers in a straight line almost due north. The following day, March the 1st, there was much rain, sometimes showers, sometimes vertical sheets of water. Our course was somewhat west of north, and we made twenty and a half kilometers. We passed signs of Indian habitation. There were abandoned palm-leaf shelters in both banks. On the left bank we came to two or three old Indian fields, grown up with coarse fern, 
and studded with the burnt skeletons of trees. At the mouth of a brook, which entered from the right, some sticks stood in the water, marking the site of an old fish trap. At one point we found the tough vine handrail of an Indian bridge, running right across the river, a couple of feet above it. Evidently, the bridge had been built at low water. Three stout poles had been driven into the stream bed, in a line at right angles to the current. The bridge had consisted of poles fastened to these supports, leading between them and from the support at each end to the banks. The rope of tough vines had been stretched as a handrail, necessary with such precarious footing. The rise of the river had swept away the bridge, but the props and the rope handrail remained. In the afternoon, from the boat, Jerry shot a large, dark grey monkey with a prehensile tail. It was very good eating. We camped on a dry, level space, but a few feet above, and close beside the river, so that our swimming bath was handy. The trees were cleared, and camp was made with orderly hurry. One of the men almost stepped on a poisonous coral snake, which would have been a serious thing, as his feet were bare. But I had on stout shoes, and the fangs of these serpents, unlike those of the pit-vipers, are too short to penetrate good leather. I promptly put my foot on him, and he bit my shoe with harmless venom. It has been said that, that the brilliant hues of the coral snake, when in its native haunts, really confer on it a concealing coloration. In the dark and tangled woods, and to an only less extent in the ordinary varied landscape, anything motionless, especially if partially hidden, easily eludes the eye. But against the dark brown mould of the forest floor, on which we found this coral snake, its bright and varied coloration was distinctly revealing, infinitely more so than the duller mottling of the jararaca and other dangerous snakes of the genus Lahekis. In the same place, however, we found a striking example of genuine protective or mimetic coloration and shape. A rather large insect larva, at least we judged it to be a larval form, but we were none of us entomologists, bore a resemblance to a partially curled dry leaf, which was fairly startling. The tail exactly resembled the stem or continuation of the mibred of the dead leaf. The flattened body was curled up at the sides, and veined and colored precisely like the leaf. The head, colored like the leaf, projected in front. We were still in the Brazilian highlands, the forest did not teem with life. It was generally rather silent. We did not hear such a chorus of birds and mammals as we had occasionally heard, even on our overland journey, when more than once we had been awakened at dawn by the howling, screaming, yelping, and chattering of monkeys, toucans, macaws, parrots, and parakeets. There were, however, from time to time, queer sounds from the forest, and after nightfall, Different kinds of frogs and insects uttered strange cries and calls. In volume and frequency, these seemed to increase until midnight. Then they died away, and before dawn everything was silent. At this camp, the caragadors ants completely devoured the doctor's undershirt and ate holes in his mosquito net, and they also ate the strap of Lyra's gun case. 
the little stingless bees of many kinds swarmed in such multitudes and were so persevering that we had to wear our headnets when we wrote or skinned specimens. End of chapter 8, part 1